just as we've been learning in Jonah about God's grace and our resistance to that grace, um, it calls ahead to a story that Jesus will share with his followers about the prodigal son. So let's read together this passage from Luke. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you, have never, you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Let's pray. Father, help us to remember um, that we were all once lost um, in our own way, God, and that you brought us back into the fold. You called us by our names, and now we are yours. I pray that as we um, finish out this series that you would give Jason exactly what we need to hear, Lord. Give us uh, ears to hear and hearts that are open. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Let's go ahead and turn our attention to Jonah chapter 4. I'm going to read this last chapter to you. So Jonah 4, verse 1. If you're new here, I will catch you up here in a minute, but I want to get it all out on the table first. Jonah 4, verse 1. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This, that is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. 
Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort, and Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals. Two stories, one a parable from Jesus, one this last chapter of Jonah that highlight a response to God's grace, a resistance to God's grace. These are not happy ending stories. But they raise the question, how do you respond to God's grace? How do you respond to God's grace? I like it when I am the recipient of God's grace. Have you ever gotten pulled over and gotten out of the ticket? Raise your hand. You were speeding, you were guilty. The officer showed you grace. My wife, Kim, in college, West Lafayette, Purdue, jumps the railroad tracks. If you've ever seen Ferris Bueller's Day Off, it reminds you of that scene. She gets a warning. Me, just barely over the speed limit, two tickets in a year, a little stint in defensive driving. Anybody a defensive driving graduate? I'm with your brother. Why does she get grace and I don't? We were in college at the time. We weren't married yet, so our insurances were not connected, so there was no benefit to me. As would happen in later days, there would be consequences to our misdeeds. A trivial example, but I want you to think a little bit more deeply. How do you respond when God shows grace to somebody else? maybe even somebody who's opposed to you. A guy by the name of Gordon Wilson, Irishman. Back in the 80s, if you remember history, you had uh, the IRA, uh, the Irish Republican Army. You had Great Britain in conflict. Ireland was trying to gain independence from Great Britain, and there was a a Remembrance Day celebration in 1987. It's akin to our Veterans Day in the United States. So they're having a celebration. They're having a remembrance. It should be a time of peace. 
But in Northern Ireland, the, the IRA had, had set off some bombs. And they went off. Big explosion. And in the rubble was Gordon Wilson and his 20-year-old daughter, Mary, a nurse. And they, they're together trapped under this rubble. And they keep talking back and forth. And Mary will say, I love you, Daddy, and, and just keeps, you know, four or five times, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. And then she would, she would kind of cry out in pain in the midst of that. And then on the last time, she said, I love you, Daddy. And that's the last that he ever heard from her. She died under the rubble. Gordon, the father, survived. I want you to put yourself in his shoes for a minute. How, how would you feel? How would you feel towards those who had planted that bomb? Well, this was Gordon's response. Gordon's a follower of Jesus. And this is what he says, I bear them no ill will. I bear no grudge. I will pray for those fellas tonight and every night. What would it take for you to respond that way? Now, these words, in many ways, brought some modicum of peace to the conflict. People were inspired in the midst of conflict and darkness and all that. These words stood out. But not everyone was on board. Some people said, how, how as a father could you say that? How could you forgive? He must have been in shock. But then Gordon would go on and he would, he would be a true peacemaker in the name of Jesus in that conflict. But one of the questions that we need to confront today is how do you respond to God's grace when grace requires more of you than you are willing to give? How do you respond when grace requires more than you are willing to give? So here we are in this uh, complicated story of Jonah. We've said that Jonah, while many have uh, first encountered Jonah in, you know, like a, like a storybook Bible type thing, that, that Jonah is really a much more complex story. And we've seen Jonah as God says, hey, go to Nineveh. He says, no, I'm going the other way. I'm going to Tarshish. There's no way I will do what you called me to do to help those evil Ninevites who are some of the most brutal awful people on the face of the earth. I will not go, but God gets Jonah's attention. He's thrown overboard. He's in the belly of the ship, and he has this beautiful prayer of what seems to be repentance, and then he's vomited out on the shore. He preaches a five-word sermon to the Ninevites, and they repent. They turn. Last week, we talked about how to repent is to turn. You're going in one direction, and you turn the other way, and they they turn, and God spares them. But rather than be happy and saying, thank you, Jesus, for displaying this tremendous act of grace, think of the older brother, put yourself in Jonah's shoes. He's angry. He's angry. So we're going to walk through these verses in a little bit more detail, but what I want you to do this morning 
We've talked through the series about how we need to we need to understand the story, but we also need the humility to be read by the story. So maybe we'd be open to receive what God has for us as we look at this. So back to verse 1, but to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. Why would he be so angry? Because they repented. The hated, evil enemy turned. Now, what's really interesting, and this is, this is like a, you, you like words, you like how they're put together, you like this kind of thing, this one's for you, okay? This Hebrew word that means turned, and, I, and I, uh, uh, one of the great teachers I've been learning a great deal from, a guy by the name of Tim Mackey, who runs the Bible Project, runs all these little videos. If you're new to the Bible, this is gold. Get the Bible app, and there's some videos on there that can give you an overview of each of the books. It's a wonderful tool. But he makes this observation. As you look at this word, overthrown, the sermon was 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Overthrown can mean lots of things. Very simply, it means to turn, to be turned over, to be turned over. So to think about that, that the city would be could be overthrown, could be literally turned over and destroyed, but it can also mean turned over as in changing. Same word is used in Psalm 30, 11, where David says, you turned my wailing into dancing, you removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy. So as Jonah is preaching this kind of bare minimum sermon, One way to look at it is to say, Jonah has this meaning in mind, God has another meaning. Jonah wants them to be overturned, to be destroyed. But God had other plans. God has this turning in mind. So right there, side by side, you have these two meanings. Let's continue. Verse 2, he prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. So what we have here in the words, in the mouth of Jonah, is this great declaration of who God is. Who is God? Well, He's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Now, this is where, can I just pause and give you a word of challenge? Do you have a heart to study God's word? Do you have a heart to dig into it a little bit and say the creator of the universe, if all this stuff is real, Jesus died, he rose from the dead, the creator of the universe gave us his word. I believe we ought to look into it a little bit. I think that would be a great idea for us. But I want you to see this. So you have this declaration of who God is. This first came in Exodus 34. Okay, you go back, Moses, you know, the people, they've, uh, uh, Moses has led them out of slavery. Moses goes up to Mount Sinai and he gets the Ten Commandments. 
brings him down and all that, and there's all kinds of things. And then he goes, he goes back, and then all the people are, um, they're like, where's Moses? Why is this taking so long? So then they, they make this golden calf, and then they dance around it, and it's all kinds of just crazy um, fertility ritual stuff. It's just awful stuff. They're violating all the commandments. No idols. Don't worship any other gods. All this, they're, they're, they're violating this. Moses comes down, and, uh, you know, it's a rough situation. Some of them are, are uh, you know, forced to, to, you know, they melt this down and they drink this, and some of them die. But rather than wiping them off the face of the earth, God spares them. God shows grace. And these same words are declared. So this is who God is. This is who God is. Now, the great irony of it, stick with me on this, the great irony of if God had not relented, if God had not shown compassion here, Jonah wouldn't exist. He knows who God is, but he doesn't like it. What's he say in verse 3? Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. A lot of drama out of Jonah. A lot of drama. And even in this, it, it, again, let me give you a little Old Testament. You know, the prophet Elijah, major prophet, big deal. One of the greatest prophets. 1 Kings 19 Elijah's afraid. He runs for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. While he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a, a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord. He said, take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. Now, Elijah will go on and do great things. But you see, in Jonah here, there's almost a, a mockery. You see this highly emotional response. But the Lord replied. Notice God's patience. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. So Jonah's made this makeshift tent. And what is he waiting on? What does Jonah want? He wants the fireworks. <laughs> he wants to watch the city. <clears throat> he wants Sodom and Gomorrah. He wants this destruction. That's what he wants. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. Notice the range of emotions in Jonah. <laughs> I want to die. Oh, a plant, I've got shades. Now I'm very happy. This is kind of funny. Been talking to people and they're like, I've never looked at Jonah this way. I don't really like Jonah. 
I don't like him because I see a lot of me in Jonah. That's coming. Look out. But at dawn, the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. What is God doing here? God is trying to move Jonah's heart. He's intervening. He brought the storm. He brought the big fish. He's brought a plant. He's brought the wind. He's brought a worm. He's moving in Jonah. I don't know about you, but sometimes I don't like the way God moves because it hurts. Can I get an amen? But sometimes it's for our good. Sun blazed on Jonah, said that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, It would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said. And I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. Oh, he's so emotional. Self centered, selfish. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. Jonah, I've given you this plant. How long has your experience with this plant been? One day? One day? And you're all emotional about this? Well, at least you finally care about something, Jonah. At least there's something in there outside of yourself. Look at the patience of God here. If I were in God's shoes, I might say, I'm done with you, Jonah. Let me get somebody else. No, no. I'm just going to stick with him. Finally, you care about something, Jonah. But then God's going to say this, and should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh? in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals. The end. What a strange ending. So God's talking to Jonah. He says, finally, you care about something. There's a little bit in you that's not so self-centered, I'll grant you that, Jonah. I'll, I'll, I'll give you that. But if you can do that, if you can have this little bit of compassion, God said, let me show you my compassion. Let me show you my heart. Should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh? More than 120,000 people? Even the animals, if you go back to chapter 3, even the animals have repented. They've put on sackcloth. They've fasted. They've... It's over the top in their repentance. Throughout this whole story, the good guys are bad guys and the bad guys are good. It's all upside down, and this irony is getting us to think, to look in the mirror a little bit. But what about God's compassion? Jonah, if you can show this little bit of compassion here, 
Look at my heart. 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left. That's a Hebrew idiom that means they just don't quite get it. They're just ignorant. They don't know what they don't know. Doesn't mean they get a pass from their brutality. But they don't know what they don't know. They don't know the creator God. They don't know Yahweh. They don't know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But yet, five-word sermon and they turn. Jonah, prophet, mouthpiece of God, resist, 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 resist. So what are we left with? Well, what the story does And part of the case I've been making in this series is that God uses different types of Scripture. If you've been with us, we spent 26 weeks in the book of Romans. We looked at justification, we looked at adoption, we looked at uh, propitiation, all these big concepts about God. Knowledge about who God is, knowledge about theology and all that, and it's great. But God also gives us stories. God gives us stories. So here we are with this open-ended story. We say, what should we do with this story? What What are we left with? There's not this simple command that says, go do this. But we're invited to be read by the story. We're invited in humility, not pride. God's word is sharper than any double-edged sword. It cuts to the heart. It's our God-breathed training tool. So how can Jonah shape us this morning? So we're left with this gap. We see God's compassion, God's mercy, God's grace. We see Jonah's anger and his resistance. We're left with this gap. Leslie Allen says this, A Jonah lurks in every Christian heart, whimpering his insidious message of smug prejudice, empty traditionalism, and exclusive solidarity. He that has ears to hear, let him hear and allow the saving love of God, which has been outpoured in his own heart, to remold his thinking and social orientation. Allow the saving love of God, which has been outpoured in his own heart, to remold his thinking and social orientation. Paul in Romans 12 says, we're transformed by the renewal of our mind, the way we think, the way we see, That's what the prophets were about. They're the mouthpiece of God to say, I'm going to change. I'm going to help you change the way you think. You need to see God more clearly. So that's where we start. That's where we start as followers of Jesus. If I'm going to follow Jesus, I need to see Jesus clearly. I need to see the very character of God. My friends, we live in a confusing time. We live in a conflicted time. That's just where God has put us. 
As followers of Jesus, I think now that more than any time in my lifetime, we need the clarity of the very character of God. We need to see his compassion, not just in the abstract, but in the concrete. We see that on the cross. We see what Jesus did on the cross. That's the ultimate demonstration of his compassion. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Who has sinned and fall short of the glory of God? All. All. So we see God's compassion in the objective. It's true. It's true for all people, all time, but not simply abstract. And who does God have compassion for? The world, the crowds, the 120,000. But this is the truth that's hard for me sometimes. God loves your enemy, my enemy, our enemies as much as he loves you. What God's saying to Jonah is, don't you see this? Don't you see God's love, God's compassion? This is part of what Jesus is saying in the parable of the prodigal son. We see the father filled with compassion, welcomes the younger brother home. We'll have a feast. We'll celebrate. My son who was lost has now been found. What's the older brother do? No. I can't see that. I can't accept that. God, this is too much. Your grace is too much. It's not fair. I've followed all these rules, and what about me? He won't join the party and celebrate. His heart was turned against his father because he cannot accept the depth of his steadfast love, his grace, the mercy of the father. And just as with Jonah, the insider is the outsider. And he's left looking in, looking in at the party. He can't take the step. So we see God's character. But as we do that, we have to look within. We have to have the humility to say, ah. Oh. So where do you fit in the story of God's grace? Jonah's problem is that he was always trying to cut God down to size to fit his own image of who God ought to be. He lacked the humility. To see him clearly. To see that he was a part of God's bigger story. So you and I, as we sit here today, we don't just fit God into our story. We're part of God's bigger story. Not because you're special. It's not based on our record, our nationality our church tradition, any of those things. It starts with his compassion, his grace, his love. So deep down, as you allow the story to penetrate your heart, 
How do you ultimately see yourself? What do you really think about the value of your life compared to somebody else's? I think we've all got a little of that Jonah in us. What the Holy Spirit does is the Holy Spirit reminds us who we are. Reminds us that we're God's children. Because he moved first. He sent his son to die for us. But then as we we think right about God, as we continue to be changed, then we look out. And one of the marks of maturity of a believer is how do you deal with your enemies? Jesus said, but to you who are listening, say, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Those are tough words. Maybe we've heard them a lot and we just kind of put them aside. Some of you this morning, you, you, you look at that and you say, well, I know who my enemies are and it's hard. And I need the Spirit. But some of you might say, I don't think I really have any enemies. And I would say, really? Let's think about that a minute. What about those who believe differently than you? We're in a complicated world, complicated context. But we have a simple command to love. I could say four or five things right now that would probably divide our congregation <laughs> on any number of topics. I'm not going to do that today, but I want you to think in your own mind, who, who are you opposed to? Who is it that, the, the word that comes to my mind is contempt, where I don't take somebody seriously because they believe about X or they've treated me this way. What's your attitude? Sometimes we reduce complex human beings to a tweet <laughs> or a comment, and then that defines them. Love says, oh, let's be more patient. So what's your attitude this morning? Sometimes we have an anger that says, you're all wrong, you're misguided. You're part of that group. You're one of those people. You're not conservative enough. You're not progressive enough. You're not moderate enough. I'm all right. I see things clearly. If everybody would just see things the way I do, then the world would be wonderful. You mean God loves those people too? Part of the challenge of Jonah is to move from apathy to compassion. From apathy, from I, I don't care or I'm angry to compassion. If Jonah can have compassion for the plant, and this is not, it's probably not a great interpretation, but I'm like, do I care more about my yard than my neighbor? Ooh. That one just got me this morning. I just passed that on to you. Have I spent more time on, on my yard and my flowers than my neighbor? So here we are. 
we're left. And we're left with this hole between God's character, God's compassion, and our apathy. And it's in that gap that God invites us to come to the table. God invites us to come to the communion table. As people broken, as people who I see the character of God, I see his compassion, and I see my own anger, my own apathy. And we're reminded that on the night Jesus was betrayed, on the night Jesus was betrayed, he had enemies. He had those who were opposed to him. But on the night he was betrayed, he gathered his disciples in the upper room and he took out the bread. And he broke it. And after giving thanks, he said, this is my body, broken for you. Take, eat, do this in remembrance of me. So may we receive the bread together. And in the same way, Jesus took the cup. He said, this is my blood. This is blood shed for you, the blood of the new covenant. Take, drink, do this in remembrance of me. May we receive the the cup. Let us pray together. Father, as we come to you this morning, we come so thankful for your compassion, your love, Love that's not just abstract, but love that is concrete and real, demonstrated on the cross. As we receive the bread and the cup, we're thankful that while we were yet sinners, while we were your enemies, you sent your son to die for us. And now may your spirit continue to work in us and work to align our hearts with yours. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.